Good morning, Bayview Glen Church. Thank you, Diane. Appreciate that. It's great to be worshiping with you this morning. We are continuing in our series called Believe, a Journey Through the Gospel of John. And for those of you who were with us last week, you know we took a bit of a detour away from John, which felt a little weird. I don't know. To me, it felt a little weird at the beginning. But a lot of you, many of you, expressed to me over the course of this week, just how much you felt that that word was for you last week. So thank you for affirming uh, that decision to, to, to take a bit of a detour. But we are coming back to the book of John, and we are um, firmly in chapter 9. We're going to look at the same passage. So in, in, chapter, in Mark last week, we looked at Jesus healing a man, a, a blind man. And we're coming back to John where we are looking at... Jesus healing a blind man, but it's a, it's a bit of a different passage, and, uh, and so there's a word for us there today. So we're just going to take a moment, and we are going to read it together. It, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can take them out now and put your finger on John chapter 9. Uh, we're going to go through verses 1 to 7. If you have a Bible app, you can connect to our Wi-Fi in the building for free, and you can look on there or um, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Um, it'll also be on the screen behind me. So let's look at John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 together. So as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Would you pray with me? We thank you for your word, O oh God, your word that goes forth and does not return to you void, your word that goes out in power and does the work that it intends to do. We pray, God, for hearts here that your word would enter deep into our hearts, into our minds, and that you would give us eyes to see you ears to hear you, and hearts to know you this morning. I pray, God, that you would just cover this place with your spirit and that we would come prepared to meet you and to hear from you, God, that we would strap on our crash helmets because we are about to meet the living God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So for those of you who are familiar with me and my family, you know that we have four children. And when my children were young, especially when we, our first child, Karis, who's 14 now, when she was young and she would invariably get sick, the first reaction as a parent was, who did this to my child, right? Who got my kid sick? Because you want to know, because they don't just get sick for no reason, right? Somebody had to be the one to make them sick. Maybe it's themselves, right? Sometimes the reason is very apparent. You shouldn't have licked the grocery cart handle. That is why you're sick. Or this, was my, this one's my favorite. You shouldn't have drank 
the water from the public pool drain, that's going to make you sick. Both true stories from my, from my children, by the way. But if the reason isn't immediately apparent, I don't know about you as parents, but I, I go into Sherlock Holmes mode, right? It clicks on. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we need to trace this virus back to its origin. I need to know from whence it came. And so I go back into my day and I say, where did we go? Well, we started off at grandma's house. It can't be grandma's house because she's super clean, so no germs there. Where else did we go? We went to the park. We fed some ducks. <gasps> Maybe it's avian flu. Oh, wait, wrong symptoms. No, not avian flu. Where did we go next? To the playground. Who? Oh, my goodness. It was little Tommy. I saw him. His face was all blubbery. There was snot everywhere. And he was playing with my kid. It had to be him. His mother should have left him at home. Never brought him to the park. This is the blacklist. Tommy from the park. My kid will never play with him again. That's usually how it goes. Because it's important, right? It's important to identify the culprit, especially when it comes to your children's sickness. We want to do that. And so the disciples, when they asked this question of Jesus, they said, who sinned that this man should be born blind? The disciples are trying to get at the same thing. They want to find someone to blame. This man is blind, so who is to blame? You see, it was a basic assumption of um, the Jewish worldview of the time that sin and suffering were intertwined. If you transgress the law, if you do things that um, grieve God, if you're into bad stuff, then suffering is invariably going to show up in your life. There's a rabbinic saying that says, there is no death, there is no death, there it is, without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. So who do we blame? Let's blame the parents. That sounds like a good idea. Because we see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, this is in the context of the Ten Commandments where, where God pretty explicitly says, don't do these things. He says, don't worship other gods before me and don't create carven images or idols. And he says, you shall not bow down to idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. So there's reason to believe that maybe the parents are to blame for the blindness of this man. But then again, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, it says this, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. And so not crystal clear whether or not we can blame the parents in this instance for the blindness of this man. So if it wasn't the parents... Maybe we should blind them, blame the man. But if he was born blind, then when did he sin? He must have sinned prenatally. He must have sinned as a fetus. And this was actually a debate among Judaism in that time. Could a fetus sin? Now, I don't know about you, but blaming an unborn child for something seems a little far-fetched. Which leads to this first point, that blame is lame. Blame is lame. 
You can't go, I mean, you're going you're gonna to encounter hard stuff in your life, right? But if you go around trying to find somebody to blame, whether it is external to yourself, it's other people or circumstances, or maybe it's yourself, there are no winners in that game. It's a lose-lose situation. So folks, remember that blame is lame. But the Pharisees debated endlessly about the law. They're looking for someone to blame. In fact, as they debate this law, um, in, in order for themselves to be blameless, they created laws to keep the laws that kept the laws. You following me? They would create laws to keep the laws that kept the laws. And they, in essence, what they did was they created a box for themselves within which they could operate. Because when you play in a box, you're nice and safe, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with playing in a box. I remember one of the favorite things I ever did for my kids was when we bought a fridge and I turned that box into a playhouse for them. They had endless fun, okay? But the problem with playing in a box is that you don't get to play in a lot of other things. And you don't get to see the grandness and the bigness of what God has for you in the world. And so the Pharisees created this box to play in so they could be safe. For instance, keeping the Sabbath holy, all right? It's another one of the Ten Commandments. So the Sabbath is this. On the, uh, God, when he created the world, he did that in, in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And so he gave us the same commandment that, likewise, you work six days, and on the seventh day, you should rest. And do no work is what Exodus tells us. And so what does it mean, then, that I don't work on the Sabbath, which for the Jewish people is a Saturday. So what does it mean to not work on a Saturday? It seems sufficiently vague, right? So to clarify, Jewish scholars of the day, rabbis, would gather around and they would discuss this ad nauseum. What does it mean to not, to, not to work? So we first need to define work. And so what they did was they created 39 categories of what it meant to work. And then on top of that, even further, they created subcategories, over a thousand subcategories of what it means to work. How many steps can I take in a given day before it's considered work? How many letters can I write on a piece of parchment before it's considered work? Rules and regulations, laws, creating laws to keep the laws, to keep the laws. So my word to you today is this. Don't live in a box. Don't live in a box. I think for us, sometimes in our minds, we create these things. We create these rules for ourselves that say, if I do all of these things, then I'm protected. But God is big. He's wonderful. And remember when Jesus says to us in chapter 8 of John's gospel, he says, I have set you free so that you could be free indeed. In Jesus, there is freedom. So don't go and live in a, a box. That's not what God wants for you. But for the disciples who were Jewish, of course, this question of who sinned is a practical question because they are looking at life now in a brand new way. They are people of faith, but they have now, in essence, a new faith because they are following Jesus. And so it's a legitimate question. They see this man that is born blind, 
And they want to know because, hey, this is a question I've, I've, always asked, I've always asked myself, says the disciples, Jesus' disciples. This man is born blind, and what I've been taught and what I've learned is that somebody would have sinned in this situation for that to happen. So who sinned? So they legitimately want to know. It's, it's a practical question. They're just trying to make sense of the world through this new lens of faith that they have with Jesus. And who better to ask than their rabbi, Jesus? But the problem with this question is it kept an old assumption, the assumption that suffering equals sin. So they ask, who sinned that this man should be born blind? The question that they're actually asking is this. They're asking, what did he do to deserve this suffering? What did he do or what did his parents do? Somebody did something so that he should deserve this. So what they're really saying and what they really want to know is, what can I do to avoid this? What can I do or not do to avoid a similar fate as this blind man? I think we're all tempted to think this way at times. We all um, have this tendency because we want life to be predictable, right? We, want it, we don't want there to be any surprises. We want to know how to deal with the things that life, that life throws our way, right? So we want to compartmentalize and understand. Will God, how will God bless me if I do this list of things? How will God bless me if I, I don't do these things? Or at the very least, how will I stay on his good side if I... Ch- Make sure I check off the boxes on this list. How do I stay out of trouble? Because we want to think that the universe is built on principle and order, and in a way it is, because we have Sir Isaac Newton, preeminent scientist, mathematician, theologian, who in 1687 um, brought to us his laws, Newton's laws of motion. And these laws kind of show that there is an order to things. They govern the universe in a way. And so what Newton suggested was that there was this tidally predictable mechanical system that is the universe. The clockwork universe is what they called it. Like a clock with gears working in perfect unison. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. And as long as it keeps going, there's nothing unpredictable about it. The hour hand is going to move, the second hand is going to move, the minute hand is going to move, and it's going to stay that way. So there's this understanding that the the universe is like this huge clock, and so the behavior of the stars and of the planets, of the heavenly host, we can understand them and we can even predict them based on the laws that we can observe. And so this, this, bot, this, um, this mechanism continues ticking along as a, it's this perfect machine with its gears governed by the laws of physics and, and just every aspect of it, this machine is predictable. That was in 1687, almost 300 years later in 1961. The tables turn a little bit because a mild-mannered meteorology professor from MIT whose name is Edward Lorenz he uncovered a principle that is popularly known as the butterfly effect. 
Now, the butterfly effect is known in scientific communities. It's actually known, um, like, like I said, popularly. Even a, a movie was made out of it starring Ashton Kutcher. I would not recommend that movie. But it's called the butterfly effect based on this principle. This is what happened. Lorenz was a meteorologist. He was a weather guy. And so he had a computer, and he had a program. And this program, had he could input um, 12 different variables into this program to predict what weather would be like. And so he ran it through the machine. And on another occasion, he ran it through again. But he made a minuscule, infinitesimal change. He took one variable, so whether it be wind speed or temperature, whatever it is, he took one variable, and he took it from, he, he rounded it up from six decimal places to three decimal places. Minuscule. Almost nothing. Tiny little change. And when he ran it through the system, he went to get a cup of coffee, and when he came back, what came out floored him. Because that tiny little change over the course of a two-month simulation threw everything out the door. It was completely different. You could not have predicted that this was the outcome. And so when Lorenz described it, he said it, it was like a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil. And if this butterfly flapped its wings in the, in the right conditions and they all came together, it, would it could possibly create a hurricane in Texas. A hurricane from the flap of a butterfly's wing. The branch of mathematics that applies this is called chaos theory. And in chaos theory, what we see is that in these systems, all right, be it weather, whatever it is, these, these dynamic systems, that chaotic behavior exists there. So like I said, weather, stock market, traffic, it is very, very difficult to predict. And because of the butterfly effect, you almost cannot, it's almost impossible to predict what is going to happen. So my question for you is this. When you think about your own life, when you look out into the world and you see what's going on there, would you say that, the, would you say that it's predictable? Or would you say that it's more governed by uncertainty? I think we'd all agree that the life is much more like chaos theory than a clockwork universe. You see, you had these Pharisees that were trying to hold this clockwork in place. They, were, they had these gears, and they had it so perfected that everything seemed just right. It's ticking, and it's talking. They're trying to keep the conditions perfect so that nothing throws them for a loop, that they can predict everything. Gears for keeping the Sabbath, tick-tock, tick-tock. Gears for celebrating feasts, tick-tock, tick-tock. Gears for what to eat and what not to eat, ticking and talking. Perfect harmony, this clockwork universe that they built for themselves. They even had a gear for what to expect in a Messiah. You see, the Jewish people were expecting a savior. They were expecting someone to come, a person, a deliverer, to come deliver them from the oppression that they were experiencing. And they think that they know how he'll show up. 
because they've debated it, right? They've talked about it. They've, they've every detail, they're trying, to, they're trying to fit into this clockwork universe, right? This gear ticking and talking. And so they're like, if it's going to be someone who delivers us, it's going to be a king. It's going to be someone who comes in power. It's going to be someone who will eradicate our foes and our enemies and our oppressors. Not only that, he's going to come and he's going to keep the law perfectly. Because look at us, we keep the law perfectly. And so if he comes, he's going to be a paragon of the law. And so we'll recognize him. We know what he looks like. We know what to expect. We'll recognize him when he shows up. And then who shows up? Jesus shows up. And he claims to be this Messiah. And the Pharisees are thinking, but, but he doesn't look like this gear that fits in our clockwork universe. So it can't be him. No. We're going to reject everything that he says because he doesn't fit our mold. He doesn't fit what we have decided upon. What the Pharisees don't realize is that the ticking and talking is not the ticking and talking of their clockwork universe. It's the ticking and talking of a time bomb that is about to go off. Jesus has shown up to blow up this clockwork universe that they've created for themselves. Because Jesus comes to tell us that life isn't tidy, life isn't fair, life isn't uh, sensible sometimes. That life is chaotic, that it's messy, it's tragic, it's bewildering at times. Life is like that. God didn't come in the flesh. The word didn't move into the neighborhood so that because things were peachy, because things were great, he came into the world to fix the things that were broken. So this question, who sinned? Who sinned that this man should be born blind? I think we can frame it in a way that hits closer to home. Who sinned so that this beautiful, deserving couple can't have children of their own? Who sinned there? Who sinned that my roommate has been stuck in a room now for weeks on end because she's debilitated by anxiety and she can't even get up. Who sinned there? Who sinned so that this marriage is falling apart and children are hurting and things are a mess? Who sinned? I don't know about you, but I cannot find a satisfying answer. Could there be an answer that satisfies that question? I don't think there is one. But Jesus gives us something different. When the disciples ask who sinned, he answers and he says, it is not about who sinned. It is so that the work of God can be displayed. You're asking the wrong question. Who sinned is irrelevant. It's a non-issue. This happened so that the works of God could be displayed. The works of God are his healing, yes, but his compassion, 
his mercy, his love, his patience, his long-suffering, his generosity, his power, so that that could be on display in the life of this blind man. Jesus is doing this, and these works are displayed so that God can draw people to himself. That is what's happening, so that people could be drawn to himself. Just follow me here. Jesus is the word of God, right? We know that from the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He goes on to talk about the word being there at creation, being important, imperative to the creative process. In him, all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus is the creator. And the blind man, as Jesus was creating the world, Jesus saw this blind man. And it wasn't that Jesus left something out. It wasn't that this man was lacking something when he was formed in the womb, is that Jesus saw him and he said, you will display the works of God. And so when he comes into the world in the flesh and he meets this man face to face, it tells us that he took mud and he spit on it and he made it into a paste, into clay, and he put it into this man's eyes. This is a recreative act. If you think about the way that God created human beings, okay, the creative act of human beings, what did he do? He took the dust of the earth and then he breathed life into it. A part of himself breathed into human beings. And in the same way, this recreative act where Jesus takes the dirt and he spits in it a, a part of himself and he makes it into mud and then John says that he anoints this man's eyes. This word is very interesting. You don't see this anywhere else in the healings. He anointed this man. So John picked this word very purposefully because he anointed this man so that he could be set apart for a purpose, that he could be set apart, that the works of God could be displayed in him. Now, friends, aren't we all like this blind man in a way? Aren't we all vessels by which the works of God might be displayed in our lives? I think we are. I think we're like canvases to be painted upon, to be framed, and to be hung up so people can admire and see how beautiful it is. We are like clay, pounded, molded, shaped, hollowed out, and then fired, and then glazed, and then put on display for us, others to see. We are voices lifted up together in melody and harmony and counterpoint, a beautiful song for people to listen to. That is who we are. That is our lives. So the question is, how will you respond to tragedies that life throws your way? How will you respond when life gets hard because people are watching. There are people in your lives who don't know Jesus 
And when hardship comes your way, they are looking to see if your God is truly who he says he is. And if you will respond to hardships with hope. On Monday, this past Monday, I received an email with this subject line. It said this, God be praised, our house burned down. Yeah, I know, it's funny, right? It, it's incongruous. It, it doesn't make sense. How do these two statements exist together? God be praised, our house burned down? That's mental. I, when I saw this, I thought I was reading it wrong. I read it three times to make sure I'd read it right. God be praised, our house burned down. This email is from international workers that we support. Mike and Marianne Botting. And their little son, Elias. Their house burned down on Monday. That's the long and the short of it. But I want to read you the email that they sent. Um, I've edited a little bit for clarity, but this is pretty much the gist of it. Dear praying family and friends, today we underwent one of the biggest trials of our lives. It was a very windy day. There was a bushfire. Just after we finished eating lunch, our house burned down. People emerged from all around, carrying water and helping to receive the things that a very courageous few were throwing out the door. We were awed and amazed how people unquestioningly put their own safety at risk for us today. We felt the grace of God in a deeper and more real way than perhaps ever before. An old woman tenderly took my hand and told me to keep trusting in God. She's had her house burned down twice, and yet God has always provided. We are deeply sad to have lost our home, but we have a deep peace that we know comes from God. In fact, he had prepared us for, uh, for this through a friend who had been burdened two nights ago to share some verses with us from the book of Isaiah. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Be assured, I will help you. I will certainly take hold of you with my righteous right hand. God forewarned us that a heavy trial was coming, and as the flames consumed the house, we did have grace. We were filled with a sense that God is really in control, and we did not feel any anger at whoever set this fire that ended up going wild. And we are convinced that there is a great purpose in this. And already God has been speaking many words into our hearts. We'd appreciate so much your prayers for God to show us where we should live, for comfort as he will inevitably go through, uh, we will inevitably go through stages of grief, for Elias who doesn't understand, for the difficulties of not being settled in a home with a young child, and that we'll be steadfast in faith and grace at this time. Thank you for helping us carry our burden. We have beheld today that God is truly good. Love and blessings, Marianne, Mike, and Elliot. Do you see the beauty that is coming out of those ashes? Do you see that God be praised and our house burned down belong in the same sentence? When Jesus inaugurated his earthly ministry in the book of Luke, 
he was in the synagogue and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he looked for the passage from chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. And this is what it says. Jesus reads to those who are present, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is Jesus describing what he has come into the world to do. It's crazy. Making beauty from ashes, healing the brokenhearted, setting the captives free, making the lame to walk again and causing the blind to see. That is who Jesus is, and that is what he has come to do. And from the outside, it looks insane, it looks insane to people to say, praise God, my house burned down. Praise God, I lost my job. Praise God, I have cancer. I prayed that with someone this morning. It is mental. But this is who we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has come to take this messy, tragic, bewildering life that we have and to make it beautiful by doing the works of God in the lives of his people. In your lives. In my life. To give people hope. Hope to those who are watching. Now some of you might be going through a rough patch right now. At the end of our, sun, our services, we have, uh, we have a team of people who are available at the front to pray. And so we hear from many people um, on Sundays, people who understand that life is chaotic, people who are going through some tough times, looking to God to make beauty out of their ashes. So if you're going through a rough patch today, I invite you to come for prayer after the service. But more than that, I ask you to ask yourself these questions. Number one, how does God want to use this hardship in my life to display his works? How do I show him to the people around me? Number two, what greater purpose does God want to accomplish in me and through me? Indeed, when we go through hard times, when we go through suffering, God is molding and sanctifying us. He's changing us to be more like his son. But he's also doing something through us for those around us. So what is God doing through you and in you as a result of your suffering? And thirdly, am I willing to suffer gladly so that others might see Jesus? Am I willing to suffer gladly so that others might see Jesus? The world is watching. We live in an unpredictable and chaotic world. But Jesus has come into the world 
to make beauty from ashes and to take your life to make much of himself and to give glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, um, you surprise us with your love, with your compassion, with your kindness, with your goodness. And even though there are times when we feel like we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your word says that we, we need to fear no evil because you are with us. So God, I pray for those out there who right now are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. They maybe, not, they maybe don't feel that you are near, Lord, but I pray that you would help them to cling to the promise that you are near. God, that we would put on display your very works so that all who see us would not see ourselves, but the face of the very one we call Lord, Christ, Jesus, our healer, our savior, our coming king. Strengthen us, God, our feeble arms and our weak knees, as your word says, so that we can run the race that you have set before us. That we can go out into the world and we could reflect your glory. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we praise your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.